Hey podcast listeners, this is Kobe from the Common Thread Podcast, broadcasting from the Watergate in Washington, D.C. One of the very cool parts of this trip was the fact that Matias and I got to not just meet awesome people, but but go to interesting places, and, and the Watergate is among them. That day we had been at the State Department and walked over to the Watergate, and even though it's one of the places that didn't have a monument or tourists taking pictures, uh, feeling the sense of history just walking up to the places was actually pretty cool. Uh, we got to go because Luke Hartig, a BU alum, invited us to come talk with him. Uh, he is currently the executive director of the Network Science Initiative at the National Journal. Uh, he is a fellow at New America, uh, and his last job was as the uh, senior director of counterterrorism for the Obama administration uh, within the National Security Council. What we talk about at the beginning of this episode is his path from BU through Washington and, and all of the major institutions there and how they operate. Uh, we talk about the National Security Council and its function inside the White House. And then we move on to some of the controversial policies of the Obama administration, like drone strikes in areas of active conflict and outside of areas of active conflict. Uh, and then that, that discussion broadens into a larger counterterrorism discussion. So we wanted to thank him uh, very much for, for sharing his time and expertise. And uh, we'll let this interview get started with his path uh, out of the to Boston University, uh, I was an international relations major, but uh, I always really wanted to be a photojournalist. Uh, and so I worked for the Daily Free Press, got very involved in, uh, in photojournalism, and, uh, and going into my senior year, I had applied for a multitude of, of internships and just couldn't land one. Um, and so I was kind of frustrated, feeling like maybe I wasn't going to be able to be a photojournalist. Uh, I studied abroad my first semester of my senior year um, in Ecuador, uh, and while I was there, uh, the uh, attacks of September 11th took place, and uh, and kind of the frustration over my uh, challenges in journalism, and uh, and also a sense that I wanted to be part of doing something in the international stage. Uh, after that, um, led me to kind of take a different tack in my career path. So came back from uh, from Ecuador. Um, I applied for the Peace Corps. Um, I went back to San Diego, which is where I'm from, for a year um, in between and, and worked in um, child protective services and foster care, which is kind of my, my family has some background on that. Uh, and then went to Peace Corps in 2003, um, served in Guatemala for two years, um, did uh, did small-scale water projects uh, in a pretty rural part of, uh, of northwest Guatemala, um, a small village that sort of straddled the, uh, a, a Spanish-speaking area and an indigenous area, so it's kind of interesting cultural clashes and the such there, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and did a range of uh, small-scale water projects, mostly catching um, rainwater um, in, a, in a dry area and allowing them to save that rainwater and, and, and water tanks for the, uh, uh, for the, the dry season. Um, so I did that for two years. I, I came out of there thinking it was just an incredible experience. I mean, anybody who has the opportunity to serve in Peace Corps and that's something that interests them, you should do it. I mean, it's just one of the greatest um, formative experiences you could possibly come up with. You, you clearly had a very enriching experience in the Peace Corps. How did that inform your, your choice of career path thereafter and inform your sense of how, what exactly you wanted to do with your life at that point? Yeah, so I, I think it was, as I was saying, it's a just incredible experience um, being in the Peace Corps. 
uh, I liked international development. I wasn't sure that it was what I wanted to do for a permanent career. I'd actually been, you know, right before I went to Peace Corps, President Bush um, took the country to war in Iraq. And I just became fascinated by kind of the, the what I perceived as a not so great uh, decision-making process that went into that and the challenges that he and his team were facing coming out of um, uh, the decision to invade Iraq. And so I thought, I would really like to be in foreign policy. I'd really like to be um, advising on those decisions. And, uh, and so as I was finishing up Peace Corps, you know, one of the great advantages of Peace Corps is this, this incredible leadership opportunity. You learn so much about yourself and about um, about your life, and you're able to do some things you would have just never thought possible. But you don't really get a lot of kind of core skills that an employer would consider to be valuable. <laughs> right, you don't know right. how to do anything in Excel. You don't really, you know, have good scheduling skills or whatever it might be. Um, so I thought this is a great time to go to grad school. <laughs> uh, uh, so I applied uh, to several grad schools. Ended up getting into the Harvard Kennedy School, um, which was great because they have a really strong foreign policy program there. Um, and so I went for a master's in public policy. I think when you're thinking about careers, one thing that kind of struck me early on is that it's always helpful to kind of think of diagonals. Like, how could you make a case that what you've been doing now helps you into what you really want to get into? And so at that time, I said, you know, I've been a... I've been in development. I've worked at the community level. Maybe I should get into to what the, you know, the government terms stability operations and counterinsurgency. Essentially, how do you bring development tools to bear uh, in a conflict environment? And of course, that was relevant given the Iraq and Afghanistan war. Um, so, spent a lot of time looking at that in grad school. Had just an incredibly enriching experience there, um, and uh, got to know a bunch of really great professors. But one of the great things was I, I had the opportunity. To do um, to do an actual applied project um, with a client, and so the the client that I picked was actually um, a, a client in the Pentagon that was involved with stability operations, um, and so I got to know a bunch of people in the Pentagon. I got to come down to Washington, do a ton of interviews, get to meet um, a lot of really interesting people in the space, um, and then when I graduated from uh, from the Kennedy School. Uh, I got something called the Presidential Management Fellowship, um, which is a, a vehicle for going from grad school into government. Um, kind of gives you a preferred hiring. And it's a competitive process to get it, but once you, you get it, you're set, because the hardest thing about the U.S. government is getting hired by the U.S. government. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so actually, and it, as it turned out, <clears throat> the office that I'd done my thesis work for in grad school, the office in the Pentagon I was just referring to, they had an opening, and so they brought me in as a fellow to work yeah. with them. And then, like I said, because it's so hard to just get in the door on the government, once you're in, you really have a ton of opportunities available to you. So as a fellow, um, I got to go to Afghanistan for four months. So I went out to Afghanistan, had this amazing job where I got to fly all over the country, um, literally in helicopters, and uh, and visit um, you know brigades and battalions and various military units and help them think about how the State Department, how the development efforts, how agriculture, how the full range of things that the U.S. government was trying to do should be synchronized and coordinated with military activities so that we're ultimately getting to our objective, which is to deprive the Taliban of, um, of the ability to operate as an insurgency. <clears throat> um, so I got to do that as a fellow for coming out of the Pentagon. I got to go to the White House and work in the Office of Management and Budget for a period, which is just fascinating to learn about the budget process. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, again, once you're in the government, you can move around. Um, I had the opportunity to go work in counterterrorism. 
which was something I'd never done before, but it seemed very interesting, um, uh, super relevant. The mission is very important, but the complexities around um, uh, around the use of force against terrorists, around these thorny issues, around civilian casualties, um, the rule of law, how much oversight the president should have of operations, uh, and the opportunity to work with some of the most impressive people you'll ever run across in our government, our special forces, our Navy SEALs, uh, was just an incredible opportunity and something I really wanted to do. So I spent about uh, three years in the Pentagon working on special operations um, and counterterrorism. I did uh, Somalia, Mali, the Sahel. Um, I ended up finally settling in on Yemen as well as um, working on a number of our uh, sensitive activities, so kind of some of the more sensitive deployments that the special operations community um, undergoes. Uh, I would staff those up to the secretary and to other players within the Pentagon. Um, and so it's a, it a fascinating time. It was kind of right as al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula was building up to be the, the, the preeminent threat. This is before the rise of ISIS. So uh, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula was really the outside of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and Pakistan, the most um, prevalent threat to the United States. And, uh, and so I had a chance to work on that in our efforts to counter that threat, whether it's through diplomatic efforts, you know, drone strikes, partnering with their, their forces. Um, and, uh, and on the basis of that work, I had the opportunity to go to the White House. So <clears throat> I moved over to the White House to essentially do the same job, but to do it from the White House, which means you're not just looking at the military, you're looking at State Department, Treasury Department, you know, a whole range of actors who are involved. Um, and after uh, doing that for about a year and a half, I got the opportunity to become the senior director in the office, which was essentially the, the number two in the office overseeing um, a team of, uh, of counterterrorism analysts from across the U.S. government who were dealing with everything from you know, border security and criminal investigations uh, onto terrorist threats in every part of the world. Interesting. Um, so that was kind of my journey through the White House. I got to work with some incredible people. There's nothing like working in the White House. It's just, you know, it is totally grueling. I have two small kids. It was really hard on my family, but the, the experience was incredible. Um, uh, getting to work with just some of the highest quality people you're going to meet on some of the most important issues with the ability to make a real impact. And I'll say from my own perspective, based on, you know, my own worldview, the chance to work for President Obama was just incredible. I mean, it's an honor to work for the office of the president, no matter who's the president. I mean, really, no matter who's the president, to work in the office, uh, uh, to work in the White House is an incredible um, honor. Mm -hmm. But to do it for a president that you really fundamentally believe in, as I believe in President Obama, um, was just a, a remarkable opportunity. So um, w one of the things that we found most interesting about just studying your background is the degree to which you 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 connect different communities that are both within the government and outside of it. Um, you were a member of the National Security Council, and if we understand correctly, you're also a long-term member of the Council of Foreign Relations. Can you explain the distinction between the two and how they're part of the constellation that makes up Washington? Yeah, that's a good question, because it, it speaks to some kind of fundamental questions about about careers in Washington, which right, is to say right. that everybody in Washington has their day gig, and then they've got various outside activities that they're involved with mm -hmm. that are all part of kind of networking, building up your credentials, being in a good position so that um, you, you, you know, you're a more appealing candidate for opportunities mm -hmm. down the road. Um, 
uh, and so I uh, joined a couple of different organizations. So I'm a member of the Truman National Security Project. Mm-hmm. It's a um, program for uh, kind of left of center um, foreign policy folks. Um, I'm also a term member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Mm-hmm. The Council is a great uh, organization of kind of preeminent foreign policy professionals. Uh, it's primarily a membership-based organization. Okay. But they have a number of in-house fellows. They do amazing events, uh, and they have a thing they call a term membership, which is essentially for people a little bit earlier in their career, under the age of forty. Uh, they give you a chance to join the council for five years. Okay. Um, so I get, I'm part of that, um, and I've done a fellowship with the Center for New American Security. I say all this stuff not to sort of like, you know, is any sort of aggrandizement or anything mm-hmm. like that, but mostly just to give your listeners an idea of like that's kind of what people are doing in Washington you're building up the some of these other organizations you can be a part of getting to know people through those organizations trying to create additional opportunities yeah so when I left government uh and came to my current job you know I was thinking about some more of those types of things so um, I'm currently also a fellow at New America, a non-resident fellow. It's a fancy way of saying they don't pay me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I'm a, uh, I, I sit on the editorial board of a blog called Just Security right, um, right. that is uh, dedicated to providing kind of legal and ethical looks at national security issues. Um, I'm on a working group uh, at the Stimson Center looking at counterterrorism uh, budget issues. Yeah. Again, none of these things pay me, uh, which is uh, <laughs> extracurricular activities. Yeah. Uh, but but you know you're trying to kind yeah. of make sure that you're involved in issues that you care about and where you think you have a chance to make an impact. Right. In in regard to some of these organizations, can you talk about the way they impact? Um, discussion and ideas. You know, in one sense, they they build networks within Washington and, and allow for the exchange of contacts, and, and you get to meet people, and like you said, create future opportunities. But in what way does the work of something like the Stimson Center or New America um, actually facilitate the exchange of the ideas um, and a sort of refinement of, of policy? Yeah, I think that's it's a good question. I think they fill three or four important roles. So one, like you said, is it's a, it's a networking opportunity. It's a chance to get to know people who you maybe heard of through your work, but you never had a chance to directly work with. Um, second, I think that they're a great opportunity to, um, uh, to, to develop some new ideas and to amplify those ideas. Um, so... You know, my, my old boss, um, uh, when I was at the Pentagon, the head of our policy shop was Michelle Flournoy, and, and she talked about how, what a, after being in government, what the, that the, the think tank world can be such mm-hmm. a um, uh, breath of fresh air, because suddenly you're, you know, you're not just managing your inbox, but you can think some really big ideas about right. what it is that you want to be able to do. Um, and what the national security of the United States should look like. So you can put, float some unconventional ideas, you can really push the boundaries, and you can get those ideas into the discourse, into the dialogue, and, and cultivate them and, and move forward. Um, and then, you know, there's a great opportunity to just have a broader forum for bringing together diverse perspectives um, and getting, um, getting messages out there. Um, and so all of the, you know, there's, there's sort of things like the Council on Foreign Relations, big membership organization, there's New America and various other think tanks that are, and they all have different flavors, but the think tanks are trying to promote new ideas and push them out there. There's a huge range of uh, different events that are convened in Washington around uh, these issues. And they produce 
papers they, that um, might be the perspective of one person. They produce working groups and task forces that bring together a range of individuals and, and put their collective uh, thinking um, behind certain issues. Um, but all of it to try to further the, the dialogue around whatever public policy issue there might be. Um, that's the, thank you. Thank you for the, for the explanation. I think that that's, that's a pretty opaque issue for a lot of people. And so they, I think they misunderstand right. what the role of these what the roles of these different organizations are within Washington um, to kind of juxtapose outside of the government with your role inside, namely on the National Security Council. Can you describe the role of the National Security Council and your role within it and how you interacted with the different players within the National Security Council? Yeah. So technically, the National Security Council, the council itself is uh, the the cabinet secretaries in national security uh, with the president actually chairing it. So it's essentially a committee meeting where the president brings together his top um, national security officials and works through the issues of the day. Uh, and so the, 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 when you hear people talk about NSC, though, they're usually referring to the staff, which was right. what I was a part of. And, and accordingly, what we did was staff those meetings. What does it mean to staff a meeting? Well, it means that you can't just put the president and a bunch of cabinet secretaries in a room together and expect them to make decisions. These are hard <laughs> issues. No, this is not yeah, a knock on them. But yeah. these are really, really hard issues, and you have to work your way through the issues. And if it's an issue that's getting to the president, it better be a hard issue because right. the president should, is way too busy to be looking at issues that aren't hard. Right. Um, and so the, the job of the National Security Council is to coordinate the national security uh, apparatus. State Department, Defense Department, CIA, NSA, DHS. I mean, you can go on down the line of different agencies that play some sort of a role in going after bad guys, working on regional political issues, furthering economic growth, whatever it might be. Right. Um, and you, you need to bring those people together and you need to uh, figure out what's going on in the field. Um, you need to generate some new ideas. You need to build buy-in from the range of actors out there. You know, If you're going to go do military operations somewhere, that's going to have an impact on our diplomatic strategy, right? So you have to work through those challenges. And so there's a series of senior level meetings that take place culminating not always, but culminating in something that goes to the president. And you are uh, trying to bring together people, um, reach agreement when you can on relevant issues. When you can't reach agreement, that's okay too, but be able to present different options to the next level up. And ultimately to make sure that the the best, well-informed national security decision-making takes place. Um, You're also the the president's essentially personal national security staff. So you are providing him... Um, uh, analysis and insights and kind of framing around national security issues um, kind of readily at hand. And you do that mostly through the National Security Advisor. Um, So that's kind of the role of it, as opposed to when I was at the Pentagon, what we were doing was, you know, the the military would want to do a particular operation in a given area, and we would work through that operation. Is it legal? Is there, what are the implications if we do this operation? What are the risks involved in it? What does the State Department think about it? And we would kind of get really into the tactical weeds of an operation and try to turn that into um, uh, framing the salient uh, and appropriate policy points to consider um, so that the secretary and ultimately the president could exercise effective um, oversight of of military operations. Um, if I could, if I could zone in one more time on the on the National Security Council as an institution and the way it's meant to function, regardless of of current affairs, for a minute, it, um, 
In, in delivering in delivering this sort of insight and analysis to the president, a, a healthy a, you want to make sure there's sort of like a healthy diet of dissent and and of of contrasting opinions, but you want to also make sure that you're formulating clear policy. How does that work? How does um, how does the national security advisor um, manage to to collect a range of viewpoints from the staffers like yourself, and then present? The, uh, the the president with a with a coherent strategy um, that that balances risks and rewards of, of certain policy choices. Yeah, I mean, so the National Security Council goes back to um, 1947, yeah. um, National Security Act 1947. Basically, <clears throat> after World War II, which uh, there were a lot of lessons learned about what national security ought to look like and how you can do a better job of managing it. And so among the many things that came out of the National Security Act, um, 1947, one of which uh, they, they, we created the, the National Security Council. Um, and, uh, and it probably really kind of came into its own under uh, President Eisenhower, who, uh, as a former retired general who understood this um, these set of issues, personally chaired most of the National Security Council meetings. Um, and there's, you know, I'm quickly running out of my depth on this issue, but uh, but there's uh, that in terms of the history of the NSC. Yeah. But as it functions today, or as it's intended to function, it is um, intended to, I think in the first instance, be inclusive in the appropriate way. So it shouldn't right. just be inclusive that everybody has a seat at the table. Right. But all of the relevant voices, and relevant voices are almost always going to include DOD, Department of Defense, the State Department, and the intelligence community. Mm-hmm. But there are others who are going to come in. Yeah. Homeland Security, if it's a homeland issue, yeah. AID, if it's a development issue, it just depends. Mm-hmm. Um, but make sure that all those voices are represented and make sure that the, um, as I said, the, the easy or moderately difficult questions are solved before you take it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, a lot of what the National Security Advisor does is, um, is structure uh, the way that different departments and agencies will come together to develop policy and ultimately to make recommendations to the president. Mm-hmm. So the, one of the first things that a national security advisor does is, or that a new president does, is puts out a new policy directive that lays out the structure of the National Security right. Council. Right. Who will be at the meetings, who's entitled to meetings, who's optional at meetings, <clears throat> and how will those decisions move their way up to the president. Uh, and then it's a, a matter of being a faithful and fair um, arbiter of that. Yeah. Um, and so the National Security Advisor is trying to bring together players and really be an honest broker. Most effective National Security Advisors should not try to whitewash dissent. Mm-hmm. They should uh, be presenting different options and different views to the president. And indeed, I can think of several issues where we wrote long decision memos to the president in which we would say, you know, here's the issue. Um, the majority of your uh, national security team believes X. However, Secretary Kerry um, and Director Clapper uh, think we ought to do Y, and here's the reason why. And so right. when you faithfully present those to that range of views, the president has an idea of, uh, of what his people think and, and can make decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the other thing is there's all, you know, the, the, one of the, the real power games, I guess, of the White House is controlling access to the president, both yeah. in terms of uh, in terms of people as well as paper. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, the, the National Security Advisor plays an important role in saying, does this really need to go to the president? Does he really need to know this? Mm-hmm. When the president receives intelligence briefings in the morning, when there's something called the president's daily brief, um, 
who really needs to uh, be in the room there and what do we tell the president that we're doing about this, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you have a conversation so the president doesn't just hear, oh my gosh, North Korea on the verge of, you know, a <laughs> nuclear showdown, but hey, Mr. President, this is what we've looked at. These are the options available. This is what we're doing about it. These are the, these are the handful of decisions that really require your input, mm -hmm. um, and they're working through, um, through all of that. Um, I think one of the earliest controversies in the Trump administration was directly linked to the National Security Council because it plays such a crucial role, obviously, in the nation's national security. Um, can you explain why exactly the transition between the Obama administration's uh, the composition of the National Security Council and the Trump administration's National Security Council was so controversial within Washington and then specifically within the operational ranks of the U.S. government? Yeah, were there particular instances that you that really jumped out to you? I well, mean, I think the nomination it, of Steve Bannon, for yeah, instance, and yeah. then the decision the the decision to make a few, uh, if I remember correctly, a, a couple of the generals optional yeah, at the right. meetings, and yeah. why why that created such a stir within yeah. the government? Right. Yeah, yeah. I think the if I'm recalling correctly, it was um, that it was the composition of what's called the principles committee, and the principles yeah. committee is the last stop before the president. So the principles yeah. committee is the cabinet secretaries chaired by the National Security Advisor, but the president is not president. Right. Uh, and the decision that was made um, in the first directive that, that was mentioned earlier that lays out the organization and the function of the National Security Council, uh, the decision around that um, put Steve Bannon in a permanent seat in the, in the Principals Committee mm -hmm. and made the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff mm -hmm. uh, and the intelligence community, the director of the CIA, and I believe the Director of National Intelligence, optional. Um, and that caused a pretty significant freak out. Now there's, look, they've, uh, the Obama team erred on the side of inclusivity. The Bush team was probably a little bit more um, exclusive about who joined, but it evolved over time. Um, it, but it was a powerful symbol, and the, the symbol and why it was so controversial was that um, the, the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is a consummate professional and apolitical person, regardless of who it is, um, who serves whatever president the American people elect. And, uh, and the, the intelligence community is supposed to play a similar role, even though the head of the intelligence community, the head of the CIA, tends to be a political appointee. Um, so you want those kinds of apolitical voices at the table. Uh, you don't necessarily want to guarantee that a political operator is going to be at the table and is going to have a chance to, to vote. Now, right. in fairness, other presidents have chosen to, uh, and other national security advisors have chosen to bring in um, top political advisors to the president as appropriate. If it's right. something that the president's really taken a political beating on, it might make sense for that political advisor to be present in the meeting. Typically, right. they wouldn't say much. Yeah. You, they would be there in an observer mode, but they would want to know the facts so that when the dialogue is going on out there about the Iran deal and, and President Obama's supposed weakness or something, right. the political people have the truth and they have the reality of what we're actually doing. Um, so I think that was a lot of it. I think there, the other controversies that swirled around um, his approach to the National Security Council in particular was, and some of these are still present today, an extremely slow pace of appointments for senior officials in national security. Um, most of the regional assistant secretary positions at State Department, which is very senior policymaking jobs, um, remain vacant. 
top legal advisors have not been appointed to the Department of State or the Department of Defense. Um, and so there's a lot of vacancies in terms of, not at the cabinet level, but the sub-cabinet level where a lot of the really hard policymaking work happens. And frankly, I don't fully understand the, the thinking on it from, from President Trump's team because if he wants to carry out his agenda, he should appoint people who share his agenda, right? <laughs> right, yeah. and put them in place uh, to and to direct the national security apparatus in that direction. Um, and we we just haven't seen that. And I don't know if it's you know there's a few factors that might contribute to it. One of which is there was in the national security community um, a really prominent never Trump movement. There were two right. major letters, one of which was signed by over 130, yeah. I think it was 130, well over 100 uh, GOP foreign policy officials that questioned his fitness for office and basically said they wouldn't serve in the administration. Now, a number of them came around and said, maybe I would serve the administration, mm -hmm. but in most of the cases, the White House said, Thanks, you made it known your views. We're not interested in having you serve. Right. Um, it's part of the reason that we see so many generals and retired military officers um, in this administration is that most of them did not go on the record criticizing the president, partly just the military, or the candidate, I guess, at the time. Partly it's just the military ethos. You try not to get mixed up in partisan politics. Right. Mm -hmm. But... Um, but that's maybe part of it. There's also another factor of the, the, the slow pace appointments might be uh, desired by the president and people like Steve Bannon to uh, remove the administrative state. So you get you sort of Smash starve it. the beast, as it were, right? So you don't fill positions, and by not filling it, you disempower those offices. Yeah. Um, there's a certain amount of maybe just some dysfunctionality, you know, in terms of being able to. Uh, actually operate the White House and and um, and some of it is just in total fairness it's just a difficult process I mean the, yeah. the Obama um, transition which is generally thought of as a very well executed transition you know by by the the summer um, uh, late in the summer of his first year of his presidency I, mean, I think he'd only appointed around half or so of the um, uh, of the people he was ultimately entitled to appoint appoint mm -hmm. There's 4,000 appointments. Yeah. The president is allowed to appoint 4,000. The right. vast majority of those do not require Senate consent, Senate um, advice and consent, but a large number of them require confirmation. Uh, so, so if we can take a, a slight turn here into uh, some of the policy of the Obama administration, uh, I'd like to turn specifically to one of the more controversial aspects of, of Obama's counterterrorism policy, which is, which is the use of unmanned aerial, aerial vehicles, drones, as, as they're known first year of the Obama administration, um, there were more drone strikes taken than, than in the entirety of the Bush administration. Um, and, and this was part of a larger strategy, as I understand it, um, to reduce the footprint of the United States military in the world. And what was controversial about it is that the whole process seemed to be shrouded in secrecy during the first term. And, and it wasn't until 2013, the first year of his second term, that he really uh, gave a major public address to outline this. So um, with that background, um, can, you, can you talk about maybe what the formulation of this policy was. And just to tack on to that question, to what degree was the in, the massive increase in usage attributable to improvement in technologies versus yeah. just strategic considerations? Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, good. Well, good questions. Yeah, I think you have, you're, you're generally right, Kobe, in how you've uh, framed this, that, it, that the, a lot of the move toward drones, uh, especially in the first term of the Obama administration, was premised on a, on a light footprint approach. Mm -hmm. um, the idea that you know, he didn't want to, he'd already committed to going pretty deep in Afghanistan in terms mm -hmm. of the troop commitment. Mm -hmm. 
Iraq was in the process of beginning drawdown and the such, and, and I think he was leery about additional uh, large footprint commitments. There was also a, a significant uptick in the threat during this period. Um, you know, the the, uh, the the mess in Somalia, which had been kind of a simmering mess going back to 93 and the Black Hawk Down incident, uh, had begun to coalesce into some significant terrorist threats and al-Shabaab, which yeah. formed and, and subsequently um, uh, pledged allegiance to al-Qaeda during the first term of the Obama administration was a significant uh, development. Um, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula really came into its own in 2009 during the president's first year, culminating in, in uh, the failed attempt to bring down uh, the airliner going into um, going into Detroit uh, with the underwear bomb, the famous underwear bomb. So that was a big deal. Um, there's simmering uh, terrorist threats across the Sahel and North Africa. Yeah. Of course, uh, AFPAC uh, remained a significant concern for the president. And and so, and there are other places. I mean, it's a pretty, you know, the Al-Qaeda network was pretty broad and, and, uh, and pretty uh, problematic and from a policy perspective. The, the, the use of drones promised, uh, I think, in some ways, an ability to mitigate those threats, to remove the, the most threatening uh, individuals and parts of these organizations uh, without committing U.S. troops. So I think that's, that's right. I think what, you know, a lot of the focus around President Obama's use has really focused on um, his significant increase in these activities, at least you know, according to uh, outside groups that track these um, uh, during uh, his first term. But it focuses less on a lot of the constraints and the framework that he sought to put on it. Mm-hmm. And I think President Obama understood very clearly some of the perils of relying excessively on drones um, and some of the strategic consequences of tactical mistakes that might take place just as a matter of warfare. Um, And so he uh, moved throughout his first term and really codified it in the first year of his second term uh, to put in place a framework uh, that would govern the use of drone strikes. Uh, particularly outside areas of active hostilities. That's to say, not in Iraq or Afghanistan, other places where we kind of have U.S. troops on the ground and we're at a higher intensity of warfare. And there were a few things that he did through that process, um, one of which was to, to establish um, some very high standards for the use of force. If you're going to take action against uh, a terrorist target, uh, first, that target has to pose a continuing imminent threat to U.S. Mm-hmm. persons. Some debates as to what continuing imminent means, but the idea is that it's something that's actually going to happen in the near term, and it's to U.S. persons, so it's mm-hmm. not to other interests or kind of vaguely defined, but it, the Americans can die from this. Okay. Um, the, the threat can't be mitigated in another way. There's not another option for, for getting after it. Um, a lot of the provisions focus on um, on civilian casualties, and the most notable of which was uh, the commander who's going to take the action uh, must be able to assess with near uh, near certainty that civilians will not be harmed in the operation. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a pretty extensive process that goes into uh, into reviewing these strikes and making sure that the right people are at the table, uh, as I talked about earlier, kind of consistent with the role of the NSC. Uh, to make sure that um, that the, the targets are properly vetted, mm-hmm. um, that uh, that the the intelligence supports the case that they are in fact a continuing imminent threat to U.S. persons, 
um, and that uh, that they, we can handle the diplomatic consequences, that there's not a major impact on other operations we're undertaking by, um, by, by trying to take action against a particular terrorist. Um, and then I think most importantly, that, or maybe not most importantly, but kind of equally importantly with these other uh, provisions uh, is that uh, before you take action, you have to assess the capture is infeasible. So the preference is for mm-hmm. capture. That doesn't have to be us capturing. It could be the partner nation capturing. There's only been a handful of terrorists that we've captured and actually brought back to the United States in right. some capacity. Um, there are a lot of reasons for that. I'm happy to get into those. But, um, uh, but that's the basic framework. And he put this forward in a thing called the Presidential Policy Guidance, and he announced that in May 2013. It was actually... I think two weeks into my time at the White House, that it was oh, wow. uh, it was yeah. announced, and I spent a lot of my time there um, implementing that framework, and so that's kind of the document, the framework. But I think he also felt like it wasn't enough to just say this is the framework. He wanted to be transparent, not just about the framework, but also about the results of operations. I think that's a space where there's a lot more work to be done. There's right. a lot of reasons why uh, the United States has not been as transparent as it could be. It's hard, and it doesn't sound like it's hard from the outside, but it is, it, it, it's hard because uh, by disclosing information about operations, you can, uh, if you're not careful, you can make it harder for the government to keep classified things that it needs to keep classified for national security purposes. Like methods, for instance, or intelligence approaches, or that, that kind of thing. Exactly. Right. And, and just to, just to kind of provide a parallel, is that part of the reason that there was such an up uh, an, an outcry in the intelligence community when President Trump divulged some intelligence to Russian officials regarding sourcing um, in terms of uh, potential terrorist threats to the United States? Yeah, that was that. I mean, it's a sort of a different case, but right. the, the rationale is very similar, okay. which is. <laughs> If you're going to declassify something, you typically, or even if even if you're not going to declassify, so you can declassify something and share it with the public, right. or you can say this piece of information I'm going to downgrade the classification okay. by masking certain information so that I can share it with a foreign government, but it's okay. still classified and I wouldn't want to share it with the the public. Right. Um, in either of those cases, you're trying to mask certain information that could compromise your sources and methods. Mm-hmm. Either compromise it because the Russians would. You know, want to out it or or otherwise or compromise because then once the American public knows, you know, the cat's out of the bag. So th- there is a there's a lot to unpack on this foreign yeah. policy and the manner in which these guidelines um, comport with international law. Sure. And, and also um, the the. The, the criticism that that sometimes the actions taken by the Obama, mm-hmm. Obama administration might not comport with their own with their own sure. standards. I want to talk about the wars that we're fighting and the wars that we were trying to address at the time that he delivered this speech and mm-hmm. at the time he released this presidential policy <coughs> guidance because um, it. it he was fighting under the authorization of uh, the authorization to use military force from 2001, which talked about Al Qaeda and associated forces. And by the time we get to 2009, when he takes office, you you had mentioned that you have AQAP in Yemen and you have Al Shabaab in mm-hmm. Somalia. And and one of the things that he was seeking to do at this time, uh, or with this speech, is to sort of talk to the American public and say, let's let's downgrade this the, uh, the the war that we're in because he said in this speech that that we were in a different we were in a different context in the post 9/11 era um, and that the, the majority of threats actually faced at home the more majority of times we or the only the only time we were attacked during his first term at home was from homegrown threats and so we had to reconsider what it meant to be on war footing um, and and so my question to you in regard to this is 
during that first term, how did how did the Obama administration seek to distinguish between areas of arm uh, areas areas of active conflict um, like Afghanistan and like uh, Iraq, and areas like Yemen and Al Shabaab, and what authority did it use um, to to try to prosecute wars that had been spreading into regional wars rather than country specific state specific state specific wars? Glad you keyed in on the one of the key provisions of the 2013 speech, which was. Uh, to take the nation off of a permanent war footing. Mm -hmm. um, it was something that he was very focused mm -hmm. on and uh, and some of the constraints in the presidential policy guidance that th this framework mm -hmm. uh, were meant to do that. So you start with, you know, when, when you're evaluating these operations and developing the framework, um, you start with the legal basis, which for the United States, the domestic legal basis for it has been um, the 2001 authorization for the use of military force. Pretty broad, focused on Al Qaeda, I believe Taliban, and um, uh, and it doesn't get into um, associated forces, which I think is a lot of where you're going. Oh, sorry, yeah. So associated forces is, is based on kind of a long-standing idea that you know, if in, in a conventional war, let's say we declare war against Germany, and Germany is allied with Italy, and we haven't yet uh, declared war against Italy. But you know, Italy is planning to attack us. They're an associated force of of okay, Germany, right. and therefore we kind of capture them out of that. Now, I don't. I think in that case we end up declaring war against both of them. Yeah, but that's yeah. that's the idea. Uh, and and uh, and so the decision was made from the Obama legal team. They took some heat for this, understandably, but they they wanted to make sure that everything was grounded in um, in statutory authority. Mm -hmm. That's to say, the president has certain powers under his Article Two constitutional authorities to take uh, military action to defend the people of the United States. But President Obama felt pretty strongly that we wanted to have this in a firm um, legal footing uh, surround with based in statutory language. So, um, uh, so a lot of this was laid out by um, Jay Johnson, who would go on to be Secretary of Homeland Security, mm -hmm. but at the time was the General Counsel of the Department of Defense. And they developed a, a few basic standards. So the domestic legal basis, that 2001 authorization for use of military force, associated forces that could also be targeted pursuant to the 2001 authorization, uh, were those forces that kind of met a two-part test. Were they an affiliate of al-Qaeda? As in, they said, hey, um, I'm part of al-Qaeda, pledged by Ott, and al-Qaeda accepts them. And are they engaged in co-belligerency okay. in the fight against the United States and its allies? And that's kind of the test for being an associated force. And there is a very extensive process to work through the intelligence basis that would lead uh, to that determination. Um, but that's kind of the core basis for the domestic legal basis for using force. The international legal basis gets a little bit more complicated. Mm -hmm. And the United States is essentially uh, abided by um, by the law of armed conflict, which is essentially to say we're going to treat this this fight from a legal perspective as essentially the same as if we were fighting Germany or mm -hmm. you know conventional ally, right, or a conventional uh, adversary. Uh, and so uh, the, the the basic provisions related to discrimination and precision and proportionality, which are all pretty well established concepts in warfare, mm -hmm. <clears throat> apply to this. Now, President Obama said that's not sufficient given the nature of these operations, given the nature of how our enemy operates, and, and that I don't want to be in a permanent war footing. And so President Obama built these policy frameworks that ratcheted up and more closely approximate um, international human rights law, which right. is kind of the, mm -hmm. the highest standard you get to in international law, 
um, but was not um, explicit about that being the legal basis for our, our actions. That right. was mostly what was reflected in the policy frameworks he put forward. Right. I think a lot of that was uh, consistent with you know a lot of his views as a very accomplished lawyer, but I, I think it also uh, fit in with a, um, a larger attempt to build a framework that could be could stand up uh, to scrutiny uh, in the international domain. Now, I don't think we've accomplished that. I think there are a lot of questions from international allies, organizations, the UN, others, as to whether our framework is an appropriate framework going forward. And I, I don't think that most of those uh, countries, at least our kind of closest allies, agree uh, fully with that. And there have been a number of reports that have particularly from the UN, that have questioned um, the spaces. And I think there's still work to be done to try to build this as an international framework. And there's huge criticisms of, you know, of the, of the transparency initiative and whether we've gone far enough there. Yeah. Let me pause there because I know there's other stuff. The one thing that, that President Obama appealed to particularly is the moral standing of the country in terms of making these decisions mm-hmm. between balancing the no- notions of security, notions of risk versus, okay, how does, not only how does this make us look, but how does this align with our professed values as a country and our professed values as the predominant military power in the world in terms of judicious exercise of military force that's pretty much unavailable to any other country in the world. Um, Can you you talk about that? Because I I, I think that that's one of the key distinctions between his administration and the Trump administration right now. So I think there were a few things on that. Like I said, he, he would want this policy framework and our underlying legal justifications to hold up to some level of international scrutiny. Again, I don't think we've fully accomplished that, but I think that was an attempt. He wanted to be very transparent about that framework in the first instance, and that meant a number of his senior officials and himself as well going out and offering pretty detailed Mm -hmm. policy discussions about what we're doing, why we're doing it, basis for it. Mm -hmm. This goes right up to one of his final big speeches, his final major speech to the military as commander-in-chief was in December in Tampa at the Special Operations Command and U.S. Central Command, kind of the two most important commands when it comes to these operations. And he talked at length about it, and he released a lengthy document that pulled together everything we were doing from Guantanamo Bay to drone strikes to our efforts to prevent civilian casualties on down the line and laid that out. Um, and he felt it was important to be very transparent about that. I think... He wanted to be more transparent than we were ultimately able to around uh, operations. Now, there are a few places where we had some good victories. I mean, we started announcing all of our operations in Somalia and all of our operations in Yemen. Not a lot of details because you can't usually go into great detail, but at least to acknowledge we took a strike. Here's what we think the assessment of, uh, of the casualties from that strike uh, were. Um, and then uh, releasing aggregate figures across um, his administration of the assessed, the t- what we know is the number of strikes we took, the assessed number of civilian casualties, combatant casualties, um, and, uh, and to use that to, um, to, to allow for some validation as to whether we're meeting our own standards. I think a lot of outside commentators found those aggregate statistics to be unsatisfactory, mm-hmm. mostly because they were so aggregate. They rolled up all the countries we were doing this in without fully acknowledging um, uh, you know, all any any great details about uh, about those strikes, uh, and aggregated across several years. So it's hard to look at any trend lines over mm-hmm. time. Now that said, um, you know, if if you if you look at the most prominent non-governmental trackers, uh, 
which are New America, where I'm at, um, Bureau of Investigative Journalism, mm-hmm. uh, as well as uh, the Long War Journal, kind of the three most mm-hmm. prominent ones. They all show a pretty significant decline in civilian casualties over time. Right. And the percentages, when you, particularly when you get into like 2016, the percentages get down pretty low, you know, less than 1% to 2% range. Mm-hmm. Um, <coughs> uh, and I think I would strongly argue that 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 meets the president's standard of near certainty that civilians will not be harmed. Mm-hmm. Now, civilians will be harmed. Like firing a missile is an inherently dangerous activity. Right. Things happen. Somebody will come into the scene that you didn't expect. There will be civilians hiding somewhere um, or in the background somewhere that you, you missed. And uh, and every time that happens, it's a tragedy. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the operators, the military takes their time to investigate what happened and try to take appropriate action to prevent it, whether that's changes to procedures or actions, uh, administrative or disciplinary actions against the people who are involved with that. Um, we usually can't discla- di- discuss the, you know, the results of those investigations because they get pretty sensitive in terms of the information that informs those investigations. Um, uh, but that, that does go on after these take place. Um, so that that addresses civilian harm uh, in some sense and, and the near certainty requirement. I'd also like to talk about, you mentioned the fact that to, to some extent, even though we never explicitly said it, these standards were meant to, to, to raise the standard to almost a human rights law standard, wherein, wherein we're being extremely judicious and using force only as a last resort. Human rights law requires that, that you essentially use a law enforcement model. However, some of the process questions um, have created uh, created issues as to whether or not we're using force only as a last resort um, in terms of do we want to capture or do we want to kill. And it's the stated policy that the United States of America only wants to capture unless it is completely infeasible. But in, in areas, when you're operating in an area like Yemen, it's inherently difficult to get on the ground and deploy a special operations force. Um, and so what, what I, what I want to know is, during the, in regard to this capture-kill feasibility, um, how, is that, how is that assessed? Uh, how is that assessed and how is that decided upon? The process requires uh, sort of, once the president signed off, signed off on it, it was a 60-day window wherein the DOD could take action. And in that 60-day window, couldn't the capture-kill feasibility change? And how do, you, how do you determine that it's no longer feasible to capture uh, someone who's on the ground? So the, the, you're, you're right in that the capture-kill feasibility question is, it takes place in kind of two levels. It's mm-hmm. a, a question that might be asked at the outset um, as you're reviewing a target. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that would be based off of kind of what you know about their pattern of life and mm-hmm. whether they, the f- entirety of factors would lead you to believe that they could be captured. Um, uh, and then it's a question that has to be asked before the action is actually taken. Mm-hmm. So you actually have a window, an opportunity. You've got a fix on, uh, on a terrorist target that's an improved target. <clears throat> is there an opportunity to capture them? And capture could be a number of things. It could be a partner force going out and grabbing them. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and in many of those cases, you know, the American public won't ever hear about it because mm-hmm. it'll be a, a partner law enforcement action, um, and uh, you know, taken pursuant to their um, their laws. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, and we want to make sure there's a legal basis for that, and that the whoever's captured will be. Um, will be treated humanely and, and the such. Um, when it gets to U.S. forces doing a capture, yeah, you're right. I mean, it gets very thorny. Some of it has to do with uh, the risk to our forces. Some of it has to do with the diplomatic risk. Countries yeah. don't that t- typically want um, a U.S. 
commando force mm -hmm. landing in their country, grabbing somebody, <laughs> right. whisking them out of the country. Right. Um, um, so the operational security on the on special operations is absolutely essential. It's one of the critical factors. There's this concept of in special operations of relative superiority, which is to say that a small force of commandos will always be overmatched over time because they're they're small and they yeah. typically are are lightly armed. They don't have armor and you know everything mm -hmm. with them. Um, and uh, so you maintain relative superiority by surprise, by speed, by operational security, these sorts of things. And so there's a chance of uh, endangering our, our force for the bin Laden raid uh, had we uh, told the Pakistani government right. around it. But yeah, it's a factor that comes up. So, you know, the cases that we have of... Um, of bringing, of capturing terrorists and bringing them back are, you know, there's two capture missions that were done in Libya when Libya was kind of the middle of a full meltdown. Um, and we went in and, and, uh, and snatched them through some pretty daring operations. Uh, we captured a guy um, who uh, named uh, Orsame, who was a uh, kind of an intermediary between uh, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and Al-Shabaab mm -hmm. as he was crossing from uh, in the... Uh, in the, the, the water passageway between Yemen and Somalia, uh, and he was captured uh, at sea. He was held on a ship, and he was eventually brought back to the United States and prosecuted. Right. Um, so, you know, the, those opportunities can be difficult for a whole range of reasons. Right, right. But particularly in regard to the assessment, sorry, I, I know yeah, I yeah. packed a lot into the question. Sure. In, in regard to the assessment of capture, key, key, uh, capture kill feasibility, yeah. Um, at what point in the process is that made, and, and how does it, how does one deal with changes in the status of, of whether or not someone is feasible to capture, if it is the United States policy, to capture when possible? Yeah, well, you're saying at the outset there would be an assessment of whether yeah. um, capture is feasible. But from, from where from where does that from, assessment come? Uh, well, from the, primarily that assessment would be made by the operator, so the Pentagon. It would be okay. made by the Department of Defense, okay. people who could actually do the capture. But there would be some questions about that, and good yeah. process should lead you to ask questions. Does the intelligence community have information that they're actually frequently going somewhere where capture would be feasible like what do we know about um, their pattern of life or other ways that we might think about capture and that would be a conversation that would happen in Washington but the the, the most of the hard questions about capture versus kill are going to happen um, in the field and they're going to happen from the relevant commander and that commander anytime they're ready to take a strike one of the questions that they would have to ask is whether capture is feasible mm -hmm. now usually you've made that assessment because you've been out you know, you've been assessing, could we get forces into this place? Would it be a safe thing for okay. us to do? Have we consulted with the government and their thoughts on this? You know, what are the political risks associated with it? So it's not like you have to suddenly do this massive long-form assessment right before a strike. Okay. It's something that can be an ongoing process that then allows you to, to act quickly when you have an operational opportunity. Okay. Um, I think I, I think before we pivot to, to, to more general counterterrorism questions, because I do think there are a lot yeah, of interesting absolutely. ones that, that, that we need to get to. I think the, the one that we really in, that we really paid attention to in our research, given your involvement and the timing of your involvement, it's m more difficult one in terms of uh, the Obama administration. That's the question of the Awolaki, uh, I'm going to get this wrong, uh, but the pronunciation of his name, but the decision to, to kill an American citizen with a drone strike. And then the the other one, I, I think the for the father, I think it's pretty, un, from a public standpoint, it's fairly understandable why he was targeted. I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious. Mm -hmm. But then the question of the son, 
comes up as well. And if you have any perspective on, on those two decisions, and if you're willing to share that with us, that we'd really appreciate that. Yeah, so the, you know, the, the decision that the president ultimately made to approve the um, lethal action, the killing, targeted killing of Anwar al-Awlaki is probably one of the hardest and most contentious um, counterterrorism policy decisions made during the administration. Um, and there's some pretty extensive legal memos from this that were released um, from the Office of Legal Counsel that made the case as to why, in certain circumstances, when the threat posed by a, um, a, 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 an authorized or essentially a, 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 a lawful combatant, that's to say they are um, a member of an, uh, an associated force under the AMF, that happens to also be a U.S. citizen, that there would be certain um, uh, standards by which that would be permissible. And it has to do with the threat, it has to do with the, uh, the process that went into assessing that threat and to considering um, uh, the, the full set of implications to, uh, to killing somebody, uh, an American citizen. Um, and so there, there's a whole range of factors, and they're spelled out, you know, I'm not a lawyer, they're spelled out far more articulately right. uh, in the Office of Legal Counsel memo than I could give them uh, justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and then ultimately that, that led to the decision to take action against him. In May 2013, as the president released his new framework on uh, drone strikes, the attorney general also released a letter in which he acknowledged the uh, the killing of Anwar al-Awlaki. He also acknowledged that we had uh, killed Samir Khan, uh, Anwar al-Awlaki's son, and Jude Kennan Muhammad, uh, and that those individuals were not specifically targeted by the United States, um, whereas al-Awlaki had been specifically targeted. Right. Um, so, you know, th- that that explanation was probably not fully satisfactory uh, to a lot of critics, um, uh, and I, uh, I totally understand that. Um, some of it is just the nature of what we're able to publicly say about uh, the basis for, for those actions and, and right. whatnot. He subsequently uh, acknowledged um, uh, two individuals who had been killed in, uh, in the Afpac um, border region, uh, one of which was an American hostage. Warren Weinstein, um, who was inadvertently killed uh, during a targeted uh, strike. Just uh, just on a more broad level, and on the general topic of, of counterterrorism, the threat that we face from the from the Middle East has evolved considerably since the start of the war on terror, and I think the doctrines of the various groups that oppose us on that level have evolved as well and have sh- have shifted as the circumstances and conditions under which they operate have evolved. Um, can you? Can you tell us a little bit about your understanding of the strategic progression from Al-Qaeda's approach of the far, targeting the far enemy before preoccupying itself with regional elements versus uh, the decision by Daesh, the more radical, more radical off, uh, splinter, splinter groups of Al-Qaeda decision to, to establish a caliphate and focus on regional matters? Um, and this is going to be a broad question to unpack, so take your time with it, go about it as you wish. Um, versus, for instance, the approach of uh, the Al Nusra Front in Syria to to band together with other uh, Islamic radical Islamist groups on the ground and and focus on developing a regional footprint, all the way over to I think your area of specialization, which is Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and Yemen, um, currently. 
Yeah, it's a good, good question. It's a good kind of rundown of the um, evolution of the of the threat. And it, one of the things I'd recommend just in terms of reading on this is uh, a document that Ayman al-Zawakri, the head of al-Qaeda, put out called General Guidelines for Jihad, um, in which he I, I lays out a strategy for al-Qaeda and what its affiliates um, ought to do. And it gets into a lot of that about having tactical patience, waiting for the right opportunity to strike the far enemy, not... Um, upsetting locals uh, wherever they're operated and and al-Qaeda has a pretty shaky history when it comes to uh, administering territory uh, certainly al-Shabaab didn't do very well at it the QAP back in 2011 into early 2012 um, essentially controlled parts of southern Yemen didn't go very well for them either uh, when you control territory you create this great beacon uh, that uh, terrorists can move toward um, and certainly uh, ISIS has built a theology or has offered a theological expla- explanation around that uh, and the, based on the idea of the caliphate and that has pulled people um, into that. But it also makes you very susceptible to counterterrorism pressure. You're operating out in the open, you can be attacked, you have the, the challenges of trying to administer territory and the, the pushback from the population that you see as part of that is all um, kind of rolled into the same uh, set of challenges there. Um, and so, you know, I think it remains to be seen whether ISIS is able to actually do that. Certainly, they, they're not doing very well right now. The loss of Mosul was huge. Um, the current campaign against Raqqa will, I'm confident, eventually wrest Raqqa from their control and then <clears throat> query what ISIS is when that uh, doesn't exist. I think one of the interesting things is, is strategically, and when I think about the my main concern, which has been the external operations threat, is in a lot of ways the al-Qaeda organization, uh, well, the U.S. counterterrorism apparatus was built in many ways to counter the al-Qaeda organization. And uh, and ISIS has uh, focused on some areas where we are maybe not quite as good. Um, so if you think about maybe the most notable thing, al-Qaeda operated mostly in the shadows, very high barrier to entry. You know, there's this Thing about uh, you know Al Shabab coming out and saying they wanted to be a member and and Al Qaeda not immediately accepting them as an affiliate right and so there's this barrier to entry there whereas ISIS pretty much takes anybody who wants to join Boko Haram so right. they right. want to be an affiliate. Great, ISIS is welcome. <laughs> join, yeah, your join. province, yeah. or you know our Africa province, yeah. right? Um, and so. Uh, and then in terms of how they operate online, you know, Al-Qaeda operate in these kind of shadowy places and um, password-protected forums and stuff like that. And, uh, and ISIS operates out in the open. They operate on, the, uh, on social media. Um, and it's, a lot of this seems to be premised on an idea of, like, instead of operating as kind of a shadowy network, let's operate as more as a movement. Right. Now, the vulnerability to operating as a movement is... Um, is that uh, it becomes much easier to infiltrate your organization, to put spies in various places and things like that. And so that might, I think, the, uh, Al-Qaeda was very OPSEC savvy. And, and when you're trying to plan catastrophic attacks against the United States airliners and things of this nature, you have to be very security savvy because you know they have a whole slew of in, uh, intelligence services trying to prevent you from doing that. ISIS very well, well may be planning catastrophic external attacks, but a lot of what ISIS seems to be doing is motivating people to take action. Mm-hmm. You know, this idea of the the, the lone wolf is just it, it's, it's kind of a, it's a misnomer. These guys, the the ISIS message, as some of my colleagues have written on, is is that you are not alone. Mm-hmm. In fact, that we are urging you to take action. Uh, we're urging you to. Um, 
to move forward with attacks, with small-scale attacks, and we will give you some of the guidance that you might need in order to be effective, operational and otherwise. And that's pretty powerful. ISIS seems to have bet on, in terms of their external ops strategy, that if you bring enough foreign fighters into Iraq and Syria, train them up, send them back, take people who are at home and maybe are not going to travel to Iraq or Syria but are, can be subject to your propaganda and their propaganda is masterful and you can give them some enablers, that maybe you can do small-scale attacks with enough tragedy to them. Think the Nice attack, for example, where it killed, what, 70 yeah. people with a, uh, with a container truck. And if you can do it on a frequent enough basis, you can begin to approximate the terror of Absolutely. a big catastrophic terrorist wow. attack. Wow. Now, that bet hasn't played out so far. We've certainly seen more small-scale attacks from ISIS than we ever did from Al-Qaeda, but it's not been kind of a steady drumbeat of, you know, right. one a month, or at least in the West, it's the, the, the attacks they cause in the Middle East are, are uh, really substantial. Um, we want to let you, you know, get out of here sure. and get home. And we want to thank you for your time. There, there's, there's one question that I wanted to ask here at the end, which is, um, you know, early on you talked about in this interview the ways that you've navigated Washington, um, and I think I'd like, to, I'd like for our listeners to understand the ways Washington might have affected you and your worldview. Um, having gone from, you know, the BU to the Peace Corps to the working your way through this Washington establishment on this side, how do you feel like the, the sort of, um, the, comprehensively this, this experience has affected the way you look at the world? Yeah, it's uh, a great question. Well, I mean, it's interesting. I, you know, I didn't grow up on the East Coast, as I mentioned. My parents have not worked in policy or politics. Um, I came to this just out of personal interest in a lot of it. And you know, the, 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 the exciting side of Washington is that there's so many people who are here trying to make the world a better place who are genuinely interested in, in public service and, and improving the world. And there's a lot of really interesting and really dynamic and really um, successful people here. Um, uh, and it's, it's an honor in a lot of ways to be able to work with a lot of those folks. Um, the ways that Washington are not like the rest of the world is that oftentimes, I think in a lot of times at the community level, people see a problem and they take action, they mobilize, they take a solution. In Washington, it's like, well, let's build a policy framework for that. Let's build a full advocacy campaign to try to get the policy framework adopted. And let's get some appropriations in place so that three years down the line, we might be able to do a government <laughs> yeah. program that solves that, yeah. right? And, and that's, that's, I'm being a little bit flip, yeah, no, I will yeah. acknowledge, but there's part of that. Now, sometimes that's what you have to do because we're trying to solve really big problems that you yeah. can't just bring some people together and solve. Um, I think in, in, in my current work um, at National Journal, I, we, we understand, we look at social networks in Washington and we understand how policy moves based on the personal connections that people have and how that results in actions that affect everyday Americans' lives. Um, and that's a complex web and, it, and it's a good reminder that you know often it's who you know and how, how long you've known them that, that can make um, a real impact uh, on things as well. Um, I think there's, you know, I think the plus side of being here um, in terms of the people is that there's just an incredible number of people, as I, as I said before, who are trying to do good work and who are engaged in interesting things. You can go to, you know, 
back before I had kids and would actually go out after work, uh, <laughs> you, could, you, you can go to any bar in downtown D.C. and find yourself talking to somebody who you know, works in the intelligence community, somebody who works at the White House, somebody who works for some advocacy organization on the Hill, works as a lobbyist, um, you know, and works in international development all in the same bar, right? I mean, that's crazy. So you can see people who have just such a tremendous group, uh, spectrum of world experiences. I think where it gets... Um, gross is that there's a certain amount of like you know the adage is Washington is Hollywood for ugly people there's there's, there's certainly a scene right there's a scene in that like yeah. did you get invited to the right party did you you know the uh, Politico everybody reads Politico in Washington they especially read Political Playbook which comes out every morning yeah. and Political Playbook gives you the news you need to know for the day on politics and mm-hmm. it's immensely useful but it also has this long gossip section about who was spotted at which cool bar for which cool party um, yeah. and who got married and you know they got that listed in there and the such and it, that part I think it's a little bit gross it's like are you here to do good work or are you here to um, try to climb uh, the ladder to get invited to the most elite that's party the, that's the swampy part huh that's yeah. the swampy <laughs> exactly. yeah and you look you're never going to win that game right yeah. like yeah. Yeah, that's a future <laughs> unless you become yeah. president you're never going to win that game yeah. um but, you know, I was just thinking in terms of, like, you, even if you become president, right? Like, at some point, you're going to be an ex-president. Yeah. And the whole world, the whole United States has been focused over the last couple of days on um, the, the tragedy in, in Charlottesville and the, the, um, and the hateful of what I would consider to be domestic terrorist acts that took place yeah. there. And, uh, and, and, and in, in looking for some hope, people have looked at what President Obama has said. Um, there's not much conversation about what President Bush said. I yeah. presume he hopefully well, said something positive. Well, they put out a statement today, actually. Both uh, George H.W. Oh, and, uh, and, and George W., they, they basically condemned uh, the, the, entire, the entire thing. And, yeah. And, you know, it was an implicit reprimand of, of the way that uh, President Trump approached it. You, you raised a, a point that um, you just reminded, just one last question sure. regarding counterterrorism. Yeah. And that is the issue of... Um, there were a few report, a few FBI reports that came out under the Obama administration that identified domestic terrorism groups mm-hmm. as key threats to the national security of the United States, and we're seeing some of that being borne out. Um, the Obama administration, to its credit, took that threat seriously, and and as far as I understand it, invested considerable resources in actually understanding that threat and trying to protect against it and defuse it. Um, what is what is your perspective on the difference between the foreign terrorism threat, the domestic terrorism threat, and how the new administration has altered the perceptions and the considerations of the U.S. government with regard to those two things? Yeah, but their big buzz word or their tagline is that they've been focused on radical Islamic terrorism. Right. Um, and uh, it's not a term that we u- utilized um, for a few reasons. Um, we never wanted to pin you know, the, the, the uh, atrocious acts of a tiny percentage of people in terms of the total number of Muslims in the world on the faith of Islam. And President Bush got that mm-hmm. right away, yeah. right after 9-11. That's one of the first yeah. things he said. Yeah. And, uh, and, it, and he drew a lot of praise from the community. Now, the community of Muslim Americans still faced a lot of discrimination, but they, they were at least happy to hear that rhetoric. Um, and you know, and, and we, if you think about the Obama administration in terms of the focus, you know, the first term was really a lot about Afghanistan, mm-hmm. getting that right, and then the drone campaign, um, and uh, and and also rectifying and preventing any future 
um, return to some of the excesses of the Bush administration, whether torture, interrogation, and such. And the second term was a lot about implementing that framework, but it was also about uh, building up some other pillars, so partnerships in particular, and countering violent extremism. And so countering violent extremism was the, the term we used to capture the efforts we take with communities um, and, and helping them with their at-risk youth to prevent them from um, becoming involved with terrorist organizations, um, to do counter-messaging, particularly, uh, and deal with uh, ISIS's presence online. I did a lot of work with that, trying to bring in the right folks from Silicon Valley and from the Muslim American community to develop positive responses to what ISIS was doing. And and we were careful to not use that term, radical Islam, uh, Islamic terrorism, uh, one, because we wanted to like work in good faith with communities, especially Muslim American communities that didn't appreciate being targeted and wanted to be part of the solution but didn't want to all be viewed with, with suspicion. But two, we wanted to reflect the fact that there are a range of threats of domestic terrorism. And just looking at the statistics, you know, white supremacists have been have posed a greater threat to uh, Americans on a day-to-day -day basis than uh, those inspired by a perverse view of Islam. Now, a lot of that's because we've been able to successfully mitigate the ISIS and Al-Qaeda threat overseas and prevent it from coming to the homeland. So there's, it's, it's, it is a mitigated threat. But nonetheless, like these are, there are other terrorists who take action in the United States, and and we also think that the we that the the framework. Um, applies to a range of groups, and more information will come out, I'm sure, over the coming weeks. But um, uh, the, this this killer, this terrorist in Charlottesville, exhibits a lot of characteristics that are consistent with, uh, you know, homegrown violent extremists um, who are inspired by a perverse view of Islam, and and uh, and they're you know dislocated type person, uh, um, disillusioned with a lot of things in the world. Family members and people in this community knew that some things were going wrong. Social media profile that was consistent with a lot of um, uh, you know, white supremacist propaganda and such. Um, uh, and ultimately, he he uh, he commits this this terrible attack. Um, I think you want to be sure to capture that. And in one of the retorts as well, but these aren't this isn't the same as Al Qaeda and ISIS who want to destroy the United States. Well. Sure, but we've sure seen a pretty traumatic uh, national moment over the last few days uh, that I would argue is, uh, is is worthy of trying to prevent those kinds of terrorist attacks going forward. Thank you so much for, for, for your time, your expertise, uh, and, and being willing to sit down with us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Thanks for coming by. All right. Appreciate it. That was our episode with Luke Hartig. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. We wanted to uh, thank him for, uh, for, for joining us, as we mentioned. We also wanted to thank Carl Lug one more time, who helped us uh, get in touch with Mr. Hartig, uh, and who was, who was very helpful generally in orchestrating the trip. Um, if you're still interested in the stuff we did down in D.C., this is just one of nine, so you can find the rest of the stuff at bucommonthread.com if that's not where you're listening to this, or you can find it on the iTunes store. Uh, if you search The Common Thread Podcast, you have to type all the words The Common Thread Podcast, and you can find it there. Uh, thanks so much, and uh, we'll look forward to talking with you soon.